0: And I remember we were coming back and she was like, so when we get home, your dad's not gonna be there. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. And apparently, according to her, when she told me this many years ago, my response was, did he take the Beatles records? I'm Matthew Philp.
1: I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier, And this is Tell Me About Your Father podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique.
0: We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world.
1: So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. My guest this week is Nick Harcourt. Nick is a noted radio DJ in Los Angeles where, for years, he hosted the popular KCRW Morning Drive music show, Morning Becomes Eclectic, where he was credited with launching the careers of artists like Coldplay, Sigur Rós, Sia, Lana Del Rey, and Haim amongst many. Nick is currently the host of the show Nick Harcourt in Jet, which plays every weekday morning on 88.5 FM in LA, and although streaming platforms supposedly killed the radio star, getting airtime from Nick is still a boon for artists. His show just might get you piped into the car speakers of some LA bigwig and is the difference between a record deal or having your song used in a commercial or a movie. The New York Times called him the star maker of the semi-popular, and Nick has provided music direction for the soundtracks of so many TV shows, including The O.C., which is credited with shaping the musical tastes of millions of early aughts teens. Nick is also the host of the podcast The Sound of Success, where he interviews fascinating people about their earliest musical memories and the artists and bands they return to over and over. I met Nick working as a producer for that show last year, and we bonded over the fact that we'd both had difficult relationships with our late dads, both of whom who had been beloved local news reporters. Nick, who was raised in Birmingham, England, is the son of Reg Harcourt, who was a respected TV news anchor and political reporter who died in 2020. Nick's father was rarely home when he was little, and his parents divorced by the time he was seven. His mother remarried a man who was violent, Nick witnessing his stepfather attacking his mother, and the household became so chaotic and dangerous that Nick agreed to go live with his father when he was 11. But by that point, Reg had lived separately from Nick for a few years and struggled with the responsibility of fatherhood. He sent Nick to a boarding school where he would stay until he was 16 and where he was abused physically and sexually. Though Nick credits his dad with introducing him to the Beatles as a child, bringing music into the home that would change Nick's life, the two were never able to mend the rupture caused by that abandonment of Nick at a time that he most needed a father. Reg and Nick tried to make it work over the years, but ultimately Reg's disinterest in Nick's own children and his harsh judgment of Nick for his struggles with alcoholism and relationships meant that the two stopped speaking to each other before Reg's death. In his father's obituaries, Nick is not mentioned. Fatherhood has subsequently not been smooth for Nick. He admits to, quote, blowing his life up when his children, who are now grown, were very young, ending his marriage to their mother, who later moved them across the country. It's a difficult thing to admit, and it's a common theme on this show, but it's less common that we hear from a father who did the detonating and then who did the work to help pick up the pieces, as Nick is. He is nearly 10 years sober now and working on rebuilding his relationship with his children. As you'll hear in his interview, he's clearly done a lot of work on himself and recovery and therapy over the years, and he vows that he will never judge his children the way that his father judged him. The word that comes to mind when I think about my interview with Nick in this episode is acceptance. Acceptance for his own father, acceptance for himself, acceptance for his children, and for life on life's terms, as Nick puts it. Nick has told me that he won't be listening to this interview because he doesn't listen to any interviews with himself. But I hope that you will, especially if you've been a life blower-upper, or someone who was caught in the blast. Okay, here's Nick. I was thinking about it. Usually our guests are promoting like a public, you know, they've written a book or they've spoken a lot in public about a father or something that they do is outwardly connected to their dad.
0: I've never, I've never, I've never spoken about my dad in public.
1: I know, which is a huge honor that you're coming and doing it with me because it's hard to do. And I don't take that lightly. Um, when
0: I told my girlfriend I was doing this, she said, what? <laughs> You're going to talk about your dad? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, we'll, we'll just treat it as a
1: free therapy session. I, full disclosure, worked as a producer for your podcast, A Sound of Success. And you've had all our listeners go listen to Nick's podcast where he talks to people about their first musical memories and just bands that have shaped them. And you've had some insanely amazing guests on lately, including Jamie Lee Curtis, etc. I mean, every time I look on social media, you have someone new and amazing on.
0: I'm hustling.
1: That's paid enough.
0: They used to have you to book it and edit it and do everything.
1: I wasn't booking Jamie Lee Curtis.
0: And then, <laughs> and then I had to do it all myself. And... uh yeah, I mean, fuck, it's a lot of work.
1: It is, but I mean, you're doing a good, you're, you're getting the good the good it's one. It's a lot of
0: work doing a podcast. <laughs> People don't know.
1: It is. For one of the reasons why I connected with you, obviously, just anytime I can listen to anyone be obsessed with music, it's a connection. But also because we both, through talking, realized that we had fathers, late fathers who had worked in media and journalism.
0: It fucked us up.
1: And fucked us up. Thank you. I've been kind of these like local, local hero journalists. Yeah. And your father, Reg harcourt was a pretty well known news presenter.
0: Just want you to know, like, I had a little bit of a shiver down my neck when you said his name.
1: I'm sorry.
0: No, it's, it's, it's weird. It's as weird, also as, like
1: probably disarming to hear me say his name. You're like, oh, to okay. To see
0: anybody, yeah, to hear anybody say my dad's name. I don't hear it. So maybe that was why I was like, that's right. My dad was Reg Harcourt.
1: Your dad was Reg Harcourt and he was a, a news presenter. He was on television and he was a pretty big Big deal. Can you tell, tell our listeners at home a little bit about who he was and, and his background and his career?
0: So, my dad was born in London and he's got his own tragic history. If we get to that, we will. But, yeah, my dad was born in London and before World War II, I think maybe 1930, he was evacuated during the war as a kid and um, he never finished school. And I think when he was 15, he started working as a copy boy in, uh, I forget the name of the newspaper, but a, a London newspaper that doesn't exist anymore. And he was Ian Fleming's copy boy.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So Ian Fleming, obviously the Bond guy and Author let's not King forget Bob. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh my gosh! He, uh, he also wrote for newspapers and my dad started off his journalism career as Ian Fleming's copy boy. At least that's what he told me. I'm pretty sure he was telling me the truth. From there, he became a, a reporter. And then he moved up to Birmingham to work for another newspaper that doesn't exist anymore, the Birmingham Evening Dispatch, in the mid-50s. He was around when television, um, commercial television was just starting. So the BBC had been doing it for a few years. And they were awarding the first commercial television licenses in the UK. And they did it regionally, right? So London actually had two TV licenses. One company did it at the weekend, and the other company did it during the week. Uh, Manchester had Granada, and Order was up near Scotland and Welsh TV. Everybody had their sort of region, and my dad uh, was around when ATV, um, which also went on to be, you know produce a lot of TV shows, including The Muppets. But back then, they got the license for for the Midlands out of Birmingham. And my dad was offered a job reading the news. And uh, he did that. And then he had this whole career in regional television, uh, expanding out of Birmingham and really doing the whole of the West and East Midlands. For those of you looking on maps, when I was a kid, he did the the nightly news and he did a, a program called ATV Today, which was the nightly news magazine, which Back in the 70s, I guess, was kind of like a new way of doing those sort of news shows. And then he became a political correspondent and he became the political editor. And he interviewed prime ministers and all all sorts of people. He He was the only guy. It's almost like I have a little pride in this. It's weird. He was, he was the only guy, the only television reporter present in somewhere in the middle 60s when a guy called Enoch Powell, who was a very right-wing dude in the mid-60s, gave a, a very famous speech where he talked about rivers of blood. It's called the rivers of blood speech um, because it was pretty radical, right, anti-immigrant stuff. My dad was the only um, TV journalist there. And so he sort of got national coverage from that. Anyway, yeah, my dad was, was in regional TV. He was a broadcaster. And it's ironic, I think, that I ended up in, in this world. I, I kind of wanted to when I was a kid. kind of Because, you know, you look up to your dad, you know, and I was like, I want to I be like my dad, you know, even though, you know, there's divorce and separation and all sorts of weird shit in there. But he was my dad. Mm-hmm. And there was a part of me wanted to be a journalist. And it never happened that way. But ironically, I end up in broadcasting, doing, you know,
1: music-related stuff. It's a lot interesting how that works. Like, I never, never, you know, started out thinking I wanted to also be a journalist like my dad specifically, but I do think it it sinks in and there's an excitement, I think, at least there was for me, of hearing about the people that my dad interviewed, even if to me they were just boring, you know, local stories or whatever, that there's something like, I think that resonated with me as a kid that I saw that that was exciting and sort of like kind of powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I was around him more when I, when I was younger. And so I would go to the the studios, you know, and they would produce a a soap opera in, in the studio there. It was in Aston, the original studios there just outside of Birmingham. Um, and they hosted a music show there called Ready, Steady, Go, which was a, you know, kind of like the British version of Bandstand or something like that. And so he worked in the studio and there were times when I would be there going, going in there. And I mean, it was fascinating, you know, being in a in a TV studio and going on the sets. This must have been when I was like eight or nine. I can remember doing that a little bit. And uh, um, yeah, I, I remember being impressed with it. I didn't think I'd ever do television, which I've done a little bit of, as you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this shit gets in early.
1: Mm-hmm hmm I was reading a piece. There are a lot of remembrances of your father that came out uh, online after he died from fellow news guys, mm. newsmen. And mm. one of them was talking about this big boon that your dad was the only journalist present during the Enoch Powell speech, which just all of the nativism and anti-immigration kind of mm. rhetoric that's unfortunately resurfaced in america and in the uk um, absolutely over the past 10 years specifically that there has been kind of the, the speech that your dad was the only person present for has started to come back into sort of the conversation so to speak in, U- in the uk and there was this remembrance of your dad and, and the person writing it was saying that your dad afterwards went the next day he figured out where he was going to be playing golf and he just like went and said, like, why'd you say it? Why'd you do it? You know, right. like and and he told him. And then he got this extra scoop. And yeah, reading it, I was like, that is so old school. And it's also the simplicity of I think reporting and storytelling. Of did well, did you ask? Did you find out where they'd be? Go ask him a yeah. couple questions. Yeah. Like that is so I think specific to that school of journalism. And I think I'm sure there are journalists, I know there are journalists and reporters that still do this to this day. Well, did you call sure. him up? Ask the question, where is he going to be? Is he going to be here? Go do a follow-up. But it was that ease too that I think inspired me with my daughter awe of like, I would never think to ask or go track down where the golf was happening. I
0: mean, different different times, obviously, from the point of view of journalism and what journalists did. Um it's funny, you know, I was just thinking, you know, there's a couple of little clips of my dad online that I've looked at. I don't make a point of it, but, and haven't done it recently, but there is a, there's a website um, called Mace, I think, and I think it's some archive for central England, and they've got lots of bits and pieces of video, and there's a couple of things of uh, uh, of my dad, but they're they're early on pieces where he's doing like, you know, what they used to call vox pop, you know, on the street. You know, talking to the man in the street about, you know, what was going on in the factory or something like really sort of, you know, what we would kind of look at now as corny and, and cheesy stuff. But, you know, in the mid 60s, that's what they did. You know, it's like something was going on. They would go out in the street with a microphone and say, so the, the prime minister thinks this. What what's your th- thought on it? And then you'd have some guy in a Birmingham accent and go, well, I'm not really sure. I Don't take too much notice of that, really. You know, you know, that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff's out there. The interesting thing about um, the politics for it, for me, and of course, you know, I, I never got to have these conversations with my dad. I mean, this is the conversation I'd like to have with my dad to be able to say, God, you know, when you did that Enoch thing, I mean, you just kind of happened to be there. When did you decide the politics was it for you? Because I have no idea. All I know is that he sort of eventually moved on to more serious stuff and was down in London a couple of days a week in the House of Parliament. Um uh and, you know, he interviewed Thatcher, he interviewed all the prime ministers of, of, of the day. And then he also hosted this show called Left, Right and Center. And I know that there's a lot of shows called that these days, there used to be one on KCRW, hosted by Arianna Huffington, or she was one of the hosts. But back in the day, he did this show called Left, Right and Center. And um, they were really interesting shows because the, the one thing that I, I respected about him, you know, I, I mean, my dad, the broadcaster is different from my dad, my dad, you yeah. know, Mm -hmm. I can look at his work and be a fan of it, Mm -hmm. really. You know, one of the things that he told me was that nobody knew who he voted for. And he was so proud of that that nobody could tell because he was the guy in the middle asking the difficult questions, no matter who the fuck you were, you know? And that's like old school reporting that we barely see. You know, every now and then we see something where, you know, somebody gets some balls and tries to hold some politician accountable, but it's. You know it's all fucking softballs these days, you know, I would see my dad you know talking to these guys and just putting him on the spot, whoever they were. I mean that's entertaining you know political coverage to me that we just don't see mhm today
1: and so so you've you've i know that you haven't had a difficult relationship with him, and I don't know a lot more beyond that with your dad when you mentioned that you weren't able to ask these questions of him. Mm. that the person that he was as a father is different than who he was as a journalist. I relate Mm -hmm. to that. Certainly. (laughs) Um, what was happening, what was happening at home? What, what, what was he like as a father and what was the trajectory with your relationship from childhood to into, you know, later years? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are the stories of your life. You know, these are the things that, you know, you look back on and you go, Oh, that's kind of the, that's why this is, part of who I am and, you know, how I've functioned as an adult, because you don't realize it when you're going through it as a kid, obviously. My dad really wasn't around that much when I was a young kid. He was fucking busy doing all this shit. You know, he was like in East Berlin getting stopped at the fucking Checkpoint Charlie or for something, you know, doing all this reporting in in East Berlin or whatever. And, and um, he, he was busy, you know. He, I don't remember him being around that much apart from Sundays and Christmas. That's kind of really all all I remember. Um, And when I was, I think, eight, they divorced. So the early memories are really kind of limited. Um, I don't remember them being bad or particularly good, although I do remember him being a real dick once um, by telling me to, you know, behave. If I didn't behave, the devil would get me. I do remember that. I I must have been like six in, in my bed. I think I still had a side on the bed. You know, yeah. like one of those sort of protective things to stop kids from falling out. And I remember that. That's fucking weird, isn't
1: it? Yeah, <laughs> It looks like still has a little guard to keep him from rolling out of bed. Yeah, but
0: you know, but I, I also, and I've talked about this and, you know, in a, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Music Lust, which is really a book of lists of of music. There's a little bit of my story in the beginning, but, you know, I talked a, a, a little bit about how I, I do remember the excitement in the house around the Beatles.
1: Uh I do
0: remember that. And because he was in television, he would get promos, you know, which back in the day were promo seven-inch singles. And I remember them both sort of dancing around about the music, you know, listening to the Beatles. And I remember it sort of felt like exciting, like they were excited, you know, because they were like these. I mean, I was born in 1957, so that must have been 63 or 2 or 4, or something like that. So I was little, I was like five, four or five or or something, five. And I I just remember that they seemed so excited. I mean, they must've been like, my mom must've been 30,
1: Mm -hmm. my dad
0: maybe early, mid thirties. And so the Beatles were like, you know, that was their shit, right? I mean, they, they, they're the classic sort of, well, not quite boomers, but, you know, born a little bit before the boom and who, Came of age in the in the in the fifties and the sixties,
1: and so he turned you on to the Beatles, which became a you know a huge formative moment for you. With loving absolutely,
0: you. I mean that's that's you know that's why we're talking today, really, because my career has you know led me to meeting you, and now we're having this conversation. So yeah, it's the Beatles. My dad and my mom, but my dad bringing home the Beatles, and you know my mom told me this. My mom is still still alive. She's eighty eight. Um, and we don't see each other very often just because of circumstances. I haven't lived in the UK for 40 years. My life is elsewhere. We talk a lot, but we don't see each other that often. And she doesn't remember telling me this, but I fucking remember it. She said to me that we were coming home from week, for a weekend. We would often go to visit some friends in, in Wales for like Easter weekends or holiday weekends two or three days, long weekend or whatever. And we were coming back from, without my dad because he was doing working, I presume. And I remember we were coming back and, and on the trip back, she was like, so when we get home, your dad's not going to be there. And I was like, uh-huh. uh-huh. And apparently, according to her, when she told me this many years ago, my response was, did he take the Beatles records? Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I think there's a lot in there, you know, that my first response was not why or where is, is he
1: mm-hmm. it
0: was like did he take the cool shit
1: did he take the cool shit did he take the thing <laughs> that he introduced into my world into my life
0: weird so what's but my you form? were
1: you were seven at that age
0: i i think i was 7 or 8 i i don't know exactly it, it might be 8 but 7 or 8 whatever i was you know i was young and very unformed um but um
1: I think kids that age, you know, there's all this like terrifying psychology or it terrifies me that like we are, we are who we are at seven or eight. Like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like the that like, English show seven up, right. It's right. been going that's on forever. How,
1: that's who we are. And like, it's believable to me that even a seven year old sub, subconsciously would be able if their father wasn't around a lot or if things were unhappy at home would be like, did he take the thing I love?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't remember there being anything bad when he was around.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, you know, it was just, you know, you know what you know, right? You're a kid and you're brought up from zero to, you know, seven or whenever this happened. And and all I know is, is what I shared with you, basically, which was, you know, I went to school and came home. He wasn't around much. My mom worked. Sometimes I would go to where she worked and then come home with her because school was really nearby. And then one day that changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I'm still, still dealing with that all these years later. I mean, it's weird to me, but I think that was definitely the break, right? In the relationship because he moved out, Mm -hmm. right? And um, my mom got involved in a, a very abusive relationship. I mean, she had a couple of boyfriends and then she got in a really abusive relationship, a guy she married. And when I say abusive, he beat her. And I was around that. I saw that. And I remember I would see my dad, I think at the beginning, we he would come over for lunch, on Sunday lunch. And then when she started to get, you know, a, a separate life, he didn't come over anymore. But, you know, we would go play football in the park on Sunday. So I would see him maybe for the first couple of years. Again, you know, it'd be nice to ask this, but I was never able to have this kind of conversation with him. You know, never be able to say, so, man, when we went to the park, I mean, you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm yeah, really interested What were we to know talking
1: about? Like, what... what What Uh, was I like? What was I like at nine? And what were we exactly? So Your memories?
0: Yeah. So, so, you know, that would happen and then it stopped, I guess. And then it was kind of like Christmas and birthdays maybe. And then, you know, she moved in with this guy, got married to this guy and, you know, I don't know what the fuck was going on with them. It was, it was not good. I mean, I do, it was an abusive relationship, but, um, so I didn't really see my dad that much. And then I remember my mom, like we left a couple of times, right? I mean, it got bad. We left, you know, my mom had pack a suitcase and we'd get in the car and we'd go to my aunt's house and we'd stay there. I know we did it at least twice, and we would stay there and a couple of days later he'd be, you know, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And then we'd fucking go back and then more shit. And and the second time it happened and we were about, we were away a little bit longer. And I'm still going to school. You know, nobody at school knows this shit's going on, you know? Back in back in nineteen sixty seven or whatever it was, you're not talking. There's no school counselors, you know, nobody knows what's going on. It's kind of like if you're acting out, I mean, nobody knew that people acted out. Nobody knew that kids acted out. You know, all I know is I got really shitty school reports, you know? And then what happened was my mom said to me, so I think she knew, you know, on some level she knew she couldn't protect us. Right. And so she said, do you you want to go live with your dad? And I was like, I don't really. And I mean, I didn't know him. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of like, They'd been apart a while. I saw him once or twice a year. And um, and I I said no. And then one thing too many happened where, you know, this guy's chasing her around the fucking house and um ugh, just ugly stuff. And I said, I want to go live with my dad. And so that was a big deal because, you know, you, you didn't want to leave your mom. Your mom is in a dangerous situation. But I knew on some level that she couldn't fucking save me. Couldn't save herself, right? And so I said, I want to go live with my dad. So... I arrive at my dad's, and I'm probably I'm in my first year of what is called high school in England, which is, but I think it's like first year of middle school here. Does that yeah. sound right? Like ten, 11, no, eleven or twelve.
1: Yeah, eleven, twelve-ish, thirteen.
0: Yeah, and so, um, and so, all of a sudden, my dad, who was having a great bachelor life as a TV dude in Birmingham with no attachments, he gets this kid on his on his doorstep, and at the time, actually, my, my dad had was dating a younger a younger woman. Um, and uh, and I went to, so she was around a couple of nights a week, but I went to live with my dad. And it obviously wasn't working for him uh, just because of his life choices at that moment. Um, strangely enough, my school reports for that three months were awesome. I yeah. got like the best school. Yeah, I mean, you look back on this shit, you know, and you go, oh, I was such a loser. I had all these shitty reports. And you go, oh, wow, look at that semester, that term. Where you were out of the chaos, yeah. and you actually things changed, but again, no school counselors are in any of this shit. This kind of st- starting to sound like a sub story, but what no. what I really want to say is that there was a big schism there already because we hadn't lived together, and then I went to live with him, and they sent me away to boarding school and that was that was the turning point, I think, for everything in my life because. What I really needed was parents to fucking care for me and not be in their own fucking insanity, but the adults couldn't deal with it. And so I ended up in a, in a boarding school, not that far away, but it might as well have been on Mars. You know, it was like 30 miles away in a town called Litchfield. And that's where I spent my teenage years until I was 16, a little over 16. And I got out of school the first opportunity. At that time you were allowed to leave when you were 16 and I'm like, I'm fucking out of here. (laughs)
1: understandably that must have been I know you don't want it to sound like a sob story but that must have been devastating I mean that must have been so scary as a little boy to see your mom being abused and to be in an abusive household and then to have this experience with your dad who's like question mark about you, but where you start to calm down your nervous system and then to be sent to boarding school. What? Wh- how did you feel about that? Were you angry with your parents? Do you remember how you felt at the time?
0: Well, here's here's the thing that I've learned through the years, and especially now that I have children, which is a whole other discussion. But what I've learned is is that you have no choice. And so, you know, when you're eight and somebody's leaving or when you're 10 and somebody's being beaten up or when you're 11 and you're sent away to school as a child you have no you have no fucking say in what the hell is going on and so your survival skills or system just kicks in yeah. and you live it because yep. what else are you going to do like i said you know there were no school counselors nobody was aware of this shit you know um so you live it. And I know, you know, there are kids who s- still live it today, e- even though we, you know, do have counseling and we do have more of, of an awareness, you know, kids in general um, uh, just have to fucking live through this shit. And it's not until you get older that you start to understand the impact that that had on you. And, you know, in general, you know, that has on on, on people, you know, when people are in abusive situations, just because they live through it doesn't mean they're okay, you know?
1: Absolutely. And, I, you know, you're not even 18 at this point. So, so you, f- you finish school and then and then what happens? Are you... Well,
0: what I, what, what I should say is that, so while I was away at school, which was three and a half years, um, basically 12 through 16 or 13 through almost 17, whatever, I left school at like 16 and a half or something like that. Um, those are your teenage formative years, right? The first couple of years were hell. Um, I tried to run away twice and I got taken back twice. Mm-hmm. You're on your own, man. And uh, I, was, I was still living with my dad. I would go there for school holidays. I would go home. But I gradually lost touch with the people that I'd gone to school with because, you know, we didn't have cell phones or anything. When you left town, you left fucking town when you were eight or ten or whatever. Um, but I, I would st- spend school holidays with him. And then time came. You know, I hit the last year, I I was always in trouble, always in trouble, always, you know, and not because I was a bad kid. I just was acting out, you know, I don't know whatever I was doing. You know, I just was in trouble. I also went to a school where they, I mean, they beat you. They had uh, gym shoes, slippers, they used to call it. You get the slipper or the cane. And this just happened constantly. So you, you sort of have to look back on this, you know, as you do your therapy to try and be a better human as you get older and go, well, wow, so you know, I was sort of sent away when I really needed somebody to like, be like, let's fucking figure this shit out as a kid here. And then while I was away, they sent me to people who beat me. And I was also um, assaulted. I don't need to go into the details, but I was sexually assaulted while I was there as well. And again, you just live it, right? You have nowhere to go. Like people don't. Didn't talk about that shit. I mean, people still don't talk about it. Sexual abuse happens today, and children feel like it's their fault they did something wrong. You know, it's sick shit. So, so I would be. I'd go home for holidays, and then by the time I hit the last year, I knew they really couldn't kick me out in the last year. The last year that I was there. So, and and now I'm like sixteen, and I'm a little bo- bit more emboldened. And you know, the last year I was just like, fuck this shit, I don't care, and I, I stopped caring. If they wanted to beat me, they fucking beat me, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Beat me, you know, slipping. I guess it is beating, right? You know, somebody hits your ass with a stick or or wraps a rubber Bunsen burner around your legs, you know, Uh, the tube, you know, the tubing. Um, Yeah, this was bad shit that fucking went down, man, you know. And I'll tell you now, I didn't even begin to come to terms with it until I got sober the first time, which I'm sure we'll talk about when I was 30, 31. And, uh, so when it came to the last year, my mom had finally got away from this dude and she'd gotten like a council flat, you know, like public housing. And when I left school, I went to live with her. And, uh, my relationship with my dad was up and down o- o- over the years. There were times when it was okay. And times, I mean, I remember walking out of there one night when I was probably like 18 or something, cause he was just being a dick. And I just... They thought I was going to the toilet and I got in the car and drove away. We just were never able to connect. And, and the saddest thing for me about it, and I think a lot of guys will say this, you know, I I alluded to it a little bit earlier. It's like, you look up to your dad, you know, I mean, there's girls and moms, there's also negative girl and mom relationships, the same as there's negative guy and dad relationships. And then there's good guy and dad relationships, that same sex relationship. There's something about it, you know? Um... And uh, he, he just couldn't connect, you know, and um, we had that experience throughout his his life right up until he passed away about three years ago. Um, and I didn't talk to him for the last six years of, of his life. It was not a fucking cool relationship.
1: Was there something, a, a big fallout in, you know, the last six years or a conversation that you just said, I'm done um, was there a specific... they, they
0: sort of came and went over the years. You know, um, I, I've, had a, uh, I've had an interesting life. I've, you know, lived in a few different places. I've been married a couple of times. I'm a sober alcoholic now, but I was an active alcoholic for different times of my life. And um, uh, he, he judged me, mm. you know, like whatever was going down, it was just judgment, you know? and uh uh there were times when we got along, and there were times when it felt like it was okay, but it never really was It was okay as long as you didn't address you know the shit mm-hmm. you know you could pretend I have a, a couple of good memories of going to football matches with my dad as a kid, and then again as a, as an adult, and it meaning so much it's It's so weird because you know I didn't have that much, so the things that you did meant a lot, whether it was as a kid or as a as, as an adult. But, you know, the bottom line was that um, I didn't really have a dad, you know, I didn't really have a guy as a, a mentor or somebody that I could talk to or be myself with, you know, so we never had a, an authentic relationship, I don't think. And it would go on this roller coaster. And uh, I was living my life on a roller coaster. And there were times when, you know, uh, I was kind of in the shit. And uh, he would just you know, just judge the fuck out of me, you know. All I really wanted was a conversation. Say, hey, hey, listen, you know. You look for your dad to be a mentor and he, he wasn't able to be that. So when I sort of finally stopped, and I stopped a couple of times through the years, it was after a couple of things where he'd made it really clear that he wasn't really interested in my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he would send cards and birthday presents, but whenever I sort of talked about them, he couldn't Kind of connect, we went there a couple of times when they were small. There was a couple of times where I would put him on the phone with my son, Sam, I have twins, Sam and Luna, when they were younger, and you know, my kid is into football, soccer, my dad was into soccer. You would think we'd be able to have generational conversations about this stuff, you know what I mean and i And I put him on the phone with my kid, and he was just really fucking weird with my kid and I was like, Uh-uh, <laughs> you know. And then, uh, and, and then we sort of, uh, you know, I had a situation in my life where I started drinking again, sober nine years again now, but at the time I had this slip. Um, and, uh, it was a long slip. It was eight years before I got back and I, you know, I broke a few things along the way, but I, I, I remember sort of talking to him about it and it was just fucking judgment. You know, it was just like, you fucked up, blah blah, blah you know, just that. Not necessarily those words, but that was the sum yeah. total of of, of of the words. And uh, there came a time when he sort of stopped responding to stuff. And I, I wrote him an email and I was like, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry. It's been difficult between us. I accept responsibility for my part, blah, 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 you know, good little program, codependent person. And, uh, um. He wrote me back. Oh, that's right. I said, you know, you didn't respond to the kid's birthday or Christmas last year, and I hope it's nothing to do with me because, you know, you're the, the grandparent, even though they don't see you. Blah blah blah. He's like, well, I don't really think of them as, you know, uh, part of my family, or uh, I don't, you know, it's like you've gone off and had a, a different life, and you know, judging me on my choice of partner, and uh, and I, I read it as a big fuck off. Yeah. So I said okay and I never spoke to him again.
1: Yeah, I could see I could see saying okay we're done. Yeah. See that? Especially being told I don't consider your children to be part of my family or my grandchildren.
0: Well, or, or, or me even. So dude, you you were reading uh, an obituary or something in the in the you know, the press about his, you know, when he passed. Um which I found out from um, you know, an old friend who I hadn't spoken to for like 20 years, who found me on WhatsApp and said, I'm sorry about your dad. And I'm like,
1: what? You um, found out?
0: Yeah, that's how I found out. Uh, the obituary. And he is survived by, not me. I wasn't on that list.
1: Who was on the list?
0: Well, his, his, his wife and, and my half-sister.
1: That must have been devastating. Well, it's interesting. You
0: know, he'd, he'd given an interview a few years before. He, he'd gotten on a, a, you know, he'd sort of retired. He reti- He retired early. And then sort of went back consulting for a while. And then he did a, a radio show, strangely enough, you know, um, uh, on, it would be the equivalent of the ARP channel. It was called Saga, which is kind of like, you know, like people over 50 kind of thing. And they have a radio station. And uh, my, my dad grew up in the era of big band music. And so he did a big band show. And there was an article in him saying, hey, former, you know, guy on ATV or Central as the station became later on. Uh, is, you know, indulging his love on on this radio show. And uh, there's this whole thing about the radio show, and then they talk about his wife and his kid, and not his son, who's had a 20-year career in radio. So, you know, the fucking hints were there. Do you know what I mean? The the hints are there all along when you're not included, and it's just fucking weird.
1: It's weird. It has to be painful. I would feel... Horrible if I were in that position. And also to your point to, to have created a life for yourself that was amazing, is amazing. You oh, totally. You hosted this incredibly popular radio show. You are a noted music expert. You have had this incredible career. You've interviewed effing Paul McCartney, you know, the the God. Of yeah. your childhood, like it's, you've, you've sat down with the most interesting people and <clears throat> to have that not be mentioned in the context of what your dad was doing must have been very painful. I want to also ask you about being a father yourself. Yeah. You mentioned your kids, you have, how old are your, your twins now?
0: They just turned 20.
1: So, you know, you're having this amazing, you know, career and you moved to LA, obviously yeah. Fast forward. You you got in you got in your car. You told your dad you were gonna use the bathroom. You got in the car and you kept driving. Fast forward to LA. <laughs> there's there's some there's some detours. Yeah. You get out of the car and you're living in California, the perfect real mm. car, and you have are this amazing career, and you're married and you have twin kid you have mm-hmm. twin babies, a daughter named Luna and a son named Sam. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that the the break was his inability to connect to them. I hear it from other guests, how people are as parents, you know, who their parents were obviously come fully into focus during those mm. moments, during yeah. those times. Do Still you, do. Yeah. Has that been something that you've experienced with fatherhood of, you know, fearing that you're repeating either his behavior or doing everything you can not to or what's that been like for you
0: um well the most important thing that that i should share before we get into that is that i separated from my kid's mom right before they were three years old okay Uh, and i'll I'll put my hand up it was you know it was me Mm -hmm. um i left and uh unfortunately i started drinking like pretty much around that time Mm -hmm. there was a lot of shit going down around me. And, and as an alcoholic who had stopped going to AA meetings, I was 16 years sober. You know, you have to remember when you talk about, you know, coming to LA and all the success, I got sober. I got sober when I was 31, when I first came to the States and I created this life and career for myself. And then right as everything looked fantastic, I fucking blew it to pieces because that's what alcoholics do, right? And as I blew my life up, I blew other people's lives up as well. Because, you know, nobody, nobody fucking gets out of this shit without a little shrapnel, you know? And so I had my kids half the time for the first couple of years. And I got into a very destructive relationship with another alcoholic. And, you know, my time with my kids for, for the ages of like, you know, three till seven or eight or something, I was, I don't think I was ever drunk around them. I really did try not to do that. I was definitely buzzed once or twice. And I think they, they know that. But they they never saw me, you know, falling down, drunk. Uh, it's amazing I was able to do that. But um, unfortunately, I've repeated some of the pattern of what I come from, right? So we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but it's important to give context to who my father was. My father didn't know his father. My dad thought that his mother was his sister uh-huh. the first five or six years of his life. So... This shit just fucking repeats itself, right? So how could he possibly know how to be a father to me with his background? He had so much fucking shit in his life with his mother. I mean, that was an awful relationship to watch, you know? And then you sort of, you know, you go through sobriety and then you you fall um, and you have kids at the same time and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, keep the plates spinning. And when I was able to get sober again, I was able to really sort of take a look at this stuff. And regardless of what went down and the stuff that I told you about, yeah, it fucking ended like this because I was like, I'm not talking to you anymore. At the end of the day, I have ultimate empathy for him. Mm -hmm. And, And I have, I feel sad for him that he had his own fucking shit. And then because of that, he was unable to have a relationship with his son and because of where i come from you know i am now the parent of children who are damaged by my actions so you know being a dad and then sort of looking back at the other stuff you just see this this family dysfunction that i'm a part of you know unfortunately i i wasn't able to break the cycle or the chain and there's part of me feels really bad about that but I've also learned that you have to forgive yourself as well. And all I can do today is do the best I can today. And, you know, the stuff that, that, that happened when my kids eventually moved out of California with their mom and grew up on the East Coast from 11 onwards, that's the greatest sadness, really, much more so than not having a relationship with my dad. But it's all tied together.
1: It is all tied together. A therapist once told me it couldn't have been any other way. And I, she was saying that in context of the sort of damage that I took on from my father. But I think it's how I find empathy for my dad and for his parents, who I would love to just take a time machine back and say, what is wrong with you? Don't do this. Mm. But to give him empathy, to give myself grace around the quote damage of how could it have been any other way? If we're being raised by these people who have these wounds. How how couldn't we not repeat these things or 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 have the isms to use a program mm-hmm. word? I'm a, a member of Al-Anon. You know, we walk around with these isms as coping mechanisms that we have from the loss of a lot, including parents, not being parented, not being. Given what we needed as kids, the love that we needed, that's something that helps me to forgive, at least, is to say it couldn't have been any other way. It couldn't have been. Any-
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, once you, once you know the story, and once you're able to sort of get out of yourself and have empathy for, for the parent and what they came from, it becomes a little different. I mean, I remember my own son, you know, I've been very honest with my, my kids about my disease as well as my, my history, I'll actually get them to listen to this to fill in all the gaps. <laughs> they know most of it, you know? But, uh, I mean, so he's been gone three years. I think about him every day. Because mm-hmm. I'm I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to fucking figure it out, man. You know? Yeah. No, you know, no matter how much therapy you have, you know, I've gone in and out of therapy through the years. And I'm English. We don't do fucking therapy, you know? I, I, I mean, I remember up. talking talking <laughs> to my dad when I was 20 and I heard my, you know, had my first, Well, I'd probably had a nervous breakdown when I went away to school, but the first one I was aware of in my early 20s or whatever, and uh, him being so shocked. And when I told him I was, you know, seeing a psychologist, you know, so it was just like, whoa. It's like, but but I've, I've done enough through the years to understand that if you come from trauma, you have triggers, right? And if you come from trauma trauma is obviously, you know, seeing my mom beaten up and, um, you know, the abandonment and all that kind of shit. Um, you know, I still sort of brush it off by saying, and all that kind of shit, you know, it's like, I still have a hard time believing that it it's real and I have a right to have, you know, um, become an alcoholic, you know what I mean? But I'll tell you, I'll tell you now, like a little before I got sober, the most recent time, something was going down and I was just so fucking upset and I was, I'm sure I was drunk as well. And I started, you know, Googling, you know, what happens to, i would never done this, you know, what happens to people who have this, this, and this experience. And it goes, oh, they become alcoholics. They become drug addicts. They become abusers. They become this, this, and this. And I was just like, fuck. I, I, you know, I didn't know that. But like you said, you, you can't escape where you come from. All you can do is to try and sort of come to terms with it and, you know, work on it a day at a time, as we say in, you know recovery programs.
1: You mentioned you want your kids to listen to this and you mentioned them moving across the country. Mm. What's your relationship like with them now? Have they been angry with you for... Well,
0: it's been been difficult. It's been difficult for everybody, but I'm sure as shit it's been more difficult for them because they were kids who had no control. And I have the deepest empathy for that from my own background. They've had a tough time with it. I'm not going to go into too many details because it's their life and I don't want to put their life on, you know, out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they, they're impacted by it. Um, they've still been impacted by it. And, uh, you know, I have a son and a daughter and they each have their own different reaction to, you know, not having their dad around. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter is more forgiving. My son and I have been working on this stuff for a long time, you know, for like seven or eight years. And I think we're in an okay place. Yeah. You know, today. Um, but it's it's taken a lot of work and it's taken a, for, for both of us, you know, each on each side. And uh, it's life, man. It's life on life's terms. And not everybody gets a great start. I consider myself really fortunate in the bigger picture of life in general. But uh, I feel lucky that that I found out, you know, the background stuff, and I found out what it did and how it impacted me. And at the end of the day, you know, like my relationship with my dad is is really one of disappointment. It's, it's disappointment. I, I forgive him because of all the reasons I've told you, but I didn't get a present dad and I didn't get a guy to mentor me through my life. Of course, now I'm an older myself, right? I'm 65 now. But through, through my life and in the various jobs that I, I mean, I did all sorts of shit before I found radio, you know, worked in a concrete factory, a plastic bag factory, a chocolate warehouse, the Mars warehouse. That was a great place to work when I was like 17, 18. I worked in sales in Australia. I mean, I moved to fucking Australia, I, you know, had a life there for like five or six years, but I got lucky, you know, I found a way of getting paid for my passion and, uh, yeah, it's just life life on on life's terms. I'm so lucky regardless of that stuff. And so with my dad, it's just like, you know, there's a picture of him behind where I'm sitting right now. There's maybe two pictures of him in the house and it's fucking weird. It's still weird. You know, I still find myself wondering what I did. Even with all the knowledge and the therapy, there's moments where it's like, yeah, but you remember that time when you did so? It's like, what the fuck are you thinking? It's like, no, 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 you were a child. And then even as an adult, you're still his kid. And I think what I've learned about being a parent myself is to understand that they're separate people, they're not an extension of me, you know? I I they're going to be who they're going to fucking be. And I all I can do today is show up today. And uh yeah. It's, it's a day at a time, you know? I'm I'm looking forward to them becoming young adults and passing through the shit that they're going through as 20 year olds in this world today. You know, it looks really bleak if you're a 20 year old kid out there today.
1: You know, my co-host, who's not here, obviously, Aaron, her father had an explosive temper, was abusive to her and her mother growing up and her brothers. And he kind of blew up his life as well. And my dad, and she and I really bonded over dads who blow up their lives <laughs> but, because, you, you know, it's rarely and, and and there are women that get the Looney Tunes TNT out and, you know, detonate and everything. Sure. But, of course, it's not always men and dads, but, but it's
0: usually guys, but
1: it's usually dads that blow up their lives. Um, and it's very rare that dads stick around to try to reassemble to pull the shrapnel out and and triage and look at the fallout and and try to repair. And so I wanna I want to thank you for for, you know, sure. not to be too cheesy, but the fact that you are willing to do the work, the fact that you're in recovery, that you're so open with it, and that you came on this show and talked to me about not only your father and the pain there and what he experienced, but giving your kids the space to help you kind of re- reform a relationship together or to build that together and to give them the space to be themselves. That's huge.
0: You know, I, I look back on, on who I was when I left. And you know, my daughter said this to me. She said, you didn't just leave her, my ex. So mm-hmm. you left me too. It's just fucking kills you. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I look back on, on who I was back then. And I was lost, I started drinking again and all bets were off, you know? And um, that's a hard thing to to deal with, to to understand that you did that, you know? Whether you were drunk or not, it's you, you have to be responsible for your choices and and, and your actions. And so in my own way of trying to break this cycle, even though I didn't succeed by being, you know, a parent 24 seven until they were teenagers, is to, like you just said, you know, try and show up today and try and sort of be the best version of yourself you can be today because you're sober now. I'm sober now. And I've been sober nine years and I'm much more in in touch with everything. And um, it feels like that's the least I can do. I mean, I kind of owe them. It's interesting, you know, talking. I don't get to talk about this. I mean, there are people close to me who know my story, obviously. And, you know, that was the edited version. But I I think having an um, un-present parent, but, you know, also understanding where they came from. It's like, you know, it's it's just fucking sad. It's just disappointing and sad at the end of the day, you know, and I, I've just learned enough to know that regardless of the hurt that still sort of kicks around and look, I mean, I go about my life having my life, but, you know, it's not in the foreground, but it's part of me, you know, and, and I just sort of, I just feel really fortunate to be able to forgive him. As a human, it doesn't mean he didn't hurt me. It doesn't mean the fucking shit he said to me about my kids or whatever or any of the stuff. It it doesn't matter. That's it's separate as a human. He he didn't have the fucking tools himself. No, he he didn't know how. I mean, unfortunately, I don't talk to my half sister because she sort of disappeared along with everything else. But, you know, he had another child and I'm assuming the relationship was better. But, yeah, we get who we get. And as I said to you earlier, you know, in the the big picture of life, you know, I'm good. I'm okay. You know?
1: I think that's so interesting. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anyone frame it that way. Disappointed. My dad blew up his life and then did the opposite of you and was like, I'm so consumed with guilt. I blew up my family. I'm going to go drink for the next 20 years and die at age 67. Yeah. Uh, I was always waiting for the apology. There would be like the apology of apologies, you know, or there would, or just something that would make sense of it. And I, and I had to accept that I, I wasn't ever going to get it, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, again, just those, those things that, you know, leave such an impression on you that are so painful and you don't get an apology. So you have to fucking, you know, you have to forgive the other person to be able to move on yourself. It's not really about forgiving them. I mean, they're gone. It's like, whatever but you have to forgive, you know, the concept of a dad who couldn't be a fucking dad for yourself, right? And, you know, the thing I learned in AA that was really helpful this time around, actually not the first time around, but it's that concept of, you know, you're being angry with somebody who doesn't exist anymore, not because they're dead, but because they're not the 34-year-old father they were anymore it's an old man or somebody else you know as we hopefully evolve you know and i think we do i've been here long enough to see my own evolution you know it's usually like you know every decade or something you know i become a little different <laughs> hopefully better now but as 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 you evolve you're a different person so it's pointless being fucking pissed off with your 32 year old dad or, or however old he was because even if he's still here he's not that guy anymore. Right. So it's kind of like you know, it's it, it's almost like forgiving the baby inside your parent. You know, it's like because I I really believe that we all come fairly clean. You know, obviously there's mass murdering fuckheads who are born as well, but most people come fairly clean. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's life that sort of turns us into who we are. But I just sort of think of him as like you know. He was just this fucking guy, man. He didn't know what he was doing. What the fuck? You can't be angry with him forever, even though the shit he said is fucking hurtful. Yeah. You have to separate that shit, you know?
1: Totally. And so
0: and so now I'm like, yeah, I forgive you. How the fuck could you, I mean, how the fuck could you have done anything else? It's okay. But you're still a cunt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's our ending. That's our last line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I, I think about that sometimes when I when I am like litigating the fight or the thing I said to my dad or I can't believe that he fucking did that when I was 14 or when I was fill in the blank age or whatever. And it's like he was just a guy. Your dad was just a guy. That's like something that I like a, a mantra that I try to repeat to myself.
0: But I But I think about that for myself as well, you know, like when, you know everything's fucking going down or people are going, oh, how are you coping? What are you doing? And just like, just a fucking guy, man. I'm just, <laughs> I'm trying to figure this shit out every day. Mm-hmm. Right? Every day. It's like, I, I get up and I just try to fucking, you know, get through it without killing anybody or, or or myself. You know, it's like, I used to have a friend and we used to call ourselves the Sidal twins, you know, Hummy and Suey, you know? <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's, that's kind of how I am some days where it's like you just get up and, you know, obviously I'm exaggerating. But, you know, uh, you're just a guy.
1: <laughs> you're
0: just a, a girl, a woman. You're We're just doing our best.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true. It's not easy. And I'm grateful as the child of an alcoholic and the child of a dad who left and someone who talks to a lot of people about dads that didn't do the work. I can't express to you enough how important what you're doing is. So thank you, Nick, for being a dad who gives a shit and who is in recovery and wants things to improve and is willing to put in the work to do it. Well, thanks. <laughs>
0: I don't know what else to say. I'm just a guy.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.